The name Keith Code, most people know in motorcycling, he is the founder of the California Superbike School. And I would say that he's probably best known for his passion for excellence, because that's what's made his brand very likely the most recognized brand in the world in his field of on-track motorcycle training. Back in the day, Keith was the first to dig deep into what made some racers win while other racers failed. He dug into the techniques they were using. He turned it into a methodology that's been taught now to over 196,000 riders, some of which have went on to national and world racing championships. Keith has written several books and loads of articles about his riding techniques, but his Twist of the Wrist series are considered solid gold for any rider. Now, today, while I have this world-renowned track instructor on Adventure Rider Radio, I want to ask him about cornering on a street bike. What I want to know from a world-renowned cornering expert is what the best sitting position is to use when cornering on a street bike, particularly if traction is low. Sitting up vertical as you go around the corner, in line with the bike's lean, or leaning inside like they do on the track. And I want to know why. So Keith's story, how he got started, how he ended up doing what he's doing, which is a fascinating story, and then cornering. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. If your motorcycle doesn't come with a built-in cruise control option, then this one is for you. The Atlas Throttle Lock is not a cruise control. It's a throttle lock, which means that it holds your throttle in whatever position you set it in. Now, you can still adjust it up or down just by twisting it. Uh, that's not a problem. But what the Atlas Throttle Lock does is basically what you want from a cruise control. It allows you to relax your fingers, your hand, your wrist, your arm, to make your ride more enjoyable and relieve fatigue. And the Atlas Throttle Lock not only does that wonderfully, it is a thing of beauty. It is super thin, wonderfully engineered. It clamps on in minutes, and it's switched easily from bike to bike. Now, it's got two buttons on it. These two buttons are designed with a tactile feedback that lets you know exactly what you're doing without having to look at it. That is key when you're riding, as you know. One for engage, the other for disengage. AtlasThrottleLock.com is a website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. AtlasThrottleLock.com and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters, cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear, greenchiliadv.com. My name is Keith Code. I am from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I am the director of the California Superbike School.
Keith, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you very much, Jim. Your name is well-known on the racetracks. It's well-known for advanced rider training. Your love of motorcycle runs deep, there's no doubt about it, but it did start way back when, when you were a kid, from what I understand. Did you see a bike? What was it that, that got you into or got you excited about motorcycling? It, yeah, exactly. I, I saw a motorcycle ride by, and it was uh, probably 1950. Uh, I was about five years old, and this guy rode by, and it was uh, for sure it was either a Harley or an Indian. And I went, oh, wow, you don't have to pedal those things. <laughs> <laughs> so I was just, I mean, absolutely immediately hooked. I wanted to get one of those. Right from that sighting. Right from the sighting of one rider riding by on a two-lane road in my neighborhood, as a kid, yeah, that was, that's all. That's all it took. A lot of kids see bikes go by. A lot of people see motorcycles go by. It doesn't have the same imprint on them. It it absolutely was an imprint. I mean, it it was uh, it was powerful in in many many ways. I mean, it might have been that the guy was he looked comfortable and and uh, just involved and and but also relaxed, you know, and his no helmet, of course, back then. His, his hair was blowing in the breeze, right? And the thing made a, a great noise. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was into noise, you know? I mean, I, I was one of those guys that put the, the play, playing cards with, uh, you know, the, whatever you could find to hook them up on the spokes of my bicycle. So it would go. Yeah, the clothes pegs <laughs> did yeah, that the, too. The clothes pegs, that's right, exactly. Yeah. No, it's so. Where do you go from there? I mean, you're five years old. You can't do much at that point. No, no, no. Well, I by the time I was uh, twelve and having various jobs of you know going around raking leaves and shoveling snow in the winter time, that's that sort of thing. I had a little bit of money, and I heard that a guy that knew somebody who was selling a Harley Hummer. I think they had two versions of it. One was about a 90 or a hundred. And then there was one that was a 150. And this was, this one was a, uh, the 90 or a hundred CC things. And it was a little imported two stroke. It wasn't something that Harley made, mm. but, but I, I heard that he had it and I wanted to ride a motorcycle. Not that I had, I had not, I had never, never really ridden one, but I heard he had it for sale and I went over to look at it and I had some money in my pocket. And, uh, well, that was, <laughs> that was the start. I mean, I was 12 years old and I wasn't particular, particularly large at the time. And so this guy was a, a stock car racer and his name was Joe Wojanowicz. Joe Woe is what they called him. <laughs> and it, he stood about six feet tall, <laughs> six feet tall. And, uh, he's, he brought the bike out from his garage and, and said, so you know how to ride these things, right? And I went, oh, yeah, sure. Yep. Just refresh my memory on where the controls are because I never even sat on one. Right. And, and, <laughs> and he gave me a long downstair. <laughs> I mean, at 12 years old, refresh your memory <laughs> like he's going to buy refresh, that. Yeah. yeah. Well, he did. <laughs> <laughs> he said, okay, here, here's the gas and 
and here's the brake, and here's the clutch. And I, I knew how to drive a car. I could drive a car. Oh. And I had, uh, and I had driven cars. So, and they were all stick shift. There were uh, no automatics. So I understood clutches and gears. And so that was okay. And it's, you know, he told me the clutch was on the left-hand handlebar and the gear lever was down there on the left-hand side. And so you click it down and you're in first gear. So I clicked it down, put it in first gear and started. I can't remember whether he started it or I started it. I, I think I did. He said, yeah, just, just, you know, just kick, kick the starter. Cause I didn't, I didn't know how to start one. And it came alive and I was in first gear and I let the clutch out and revved it up a little bit. And I w went down the road Then I had to turn around, of course, and that's when it stalled. And, and I, I, I got a little confused because I was still. <laughs> <laughs> Your first five I, minutes of riding. Yeah, my first, yeah, my first, well, I, yeah, it was more like the first two and a half minutes of my riding. <laughs> so and I said, yeah, this is great. And he came down and he got the bike and I said, yeah, okay. And I had, uh, there, there was an abandoned, relatively abandoned garage that wasn't used by the people who owned the house. And uh, I, I got him to put the thing in his car and, and bring it over there. And that's where I stashed it because there was no way I was going to bring it home. My parents would have flipped out, completely <laughs> flipped out. And my mom already had really bad news about, you know, the one of her neighbors when she was a kid growing up, you know, fell off his motorcycle and he lost a leg or, mm -hmm. you know, broke, broke it or whatever it was. So there was my, my, my dad probably wouldn't have said anything. He was, he was a farm boy. He was raised on a farm in Kentucky, but my mom was, was the sort of the, the head of the household more, more or less. So it would have been, <laughs> nice. it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have flown. I can assure you. So you have this thing stashed in the, in somebody else's garage and what do you do? You, you start, I mean, you, you don't have, or did you need a license back then? I was 12. Um, no. Yes, of course you did. Oh, you did. Okay. Yeah. And you had to be 16 to get one. Right. <laughs> so I can almost imagine what you ended up doing with this motorcycle. Uh, the first thing I wanted to do was to get it on. There was a sort of a vaguely twisty road that, came into the neighborhood where I lived and was flat. And the first thing I wanted to do, cause I had seen a picture of somebody, uh, that famous picture of, uh, Rolly free at, uh, at Bonneville where he's laid out flat on the motorcycle. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, the shot. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's what I wanted to do. So I got the thing going and I got it up into third gear and I stretched out on it, right. Going along a <laughs> slightly curvy flat road. <laughs> that was that was one of the first things I wanted to do. I wanted, I wanted to make sure that I got that part of it in. That was probably the last time I did it too. <laughs> so did you pick up on it? Were you good at it? Did you feel like you were really going somewhere with it? Uh, I didn't know. I, all I knew was that I could, I, I didn't want to ride it out on the, on the open road. And the neighborhood I lived in was all two lane, uh, two lane streets. And there was a, a, a numbered highway that ran, ran through the area. But, uh, mainly I was just riding it up and down this, uh, the roads probably just a little less than maybe a half mile. And, and, uh, the, the problem with this thing was that I had to get the battery charged all the time because he sold it to me, but the, the generator didn't work very, it, it either didn't work at all or didn't work very well, but the battery would go flat every couple of days. 
and uh, and I would have to take it out and get it charged again at this little gas station that was pretty close. And that's that's what that's what I did. <laughs> did you just sneaking home from school every day and and riding your motorcycle without your mom knowing and just going back home? Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. <laughs> well, b- both of my parents worked. My mom had a beauty shop, and my dad worked in with his brother in a sewing machine and sweeper. Uh, shop that they had, and uh, so there were there were there was no uh, no parental oversight. <laughs> and I had a I have an older sister who's uh, eight years older than me, and and she just always thought that whatever I did was great. <laughs> oh, oh, that's nice. My I think my older sister would have turned me in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. She, well, she was definitely not going to turn me in. <laughs> Whoa. So, so how do you go from that, your little 90 or 100 cc, your, your first bike at 12 years old, to racing? Well, about, uh, see, a couple of years go by, I, I buy a completely disassembled aerial square four, and it was blown up. But I got a good deal on it, right? He only wanted like $30 for it. And I thought, well, it doesn't run but at least I'll have a motorcycle in my garage, right? So I actually brought that one home. And because it didn't run, it didn't alarm anybody. I never got it running. <laughs> <laughs> but but a friend of mine had a Triumph. Uh, it was, like, it was uh, before the Tiger Cub. And they started out, I think, at about 150 cc's. And he had, he had it boarded out. And it was a little single cylinder bike it was similar very similar to a tiger cup but it was called a uh what was it called uh i forget what it was called anyhow he had sold it to another guy that i knew and had done some hand work on it and painted the tank and put a different seat on it and so on and so i knew the bike and he had taken me for rides on it and this is an older guy and uh he was actually my sister's boyfriend and i've I heard that the bike was for sale and I went and I bought that bike. So now I had a, a little bike that actually ran. So I was 14, still two years from a driver's license. And I started riding it on the roads. And in that part of uh, Pennsylvania, in the Pittsburgh area, it's lots of hills and curvy roads. It's it, That's all it is. There's hardly anything straight except for the freeway. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I you know, every opportunity I could get, I was on that thing and, and riding it as much as possible. So a year went by and the, it, it was, uh, it was, it was terrible though. It would overheat horrifically and trying to keep oil in the thing was just absolutely an amazing full-time, full-time job, right? You had the, every gasket leaked, you know, from the, it was a little single, single cylinder overhead valve motor, the valve covers leaked, the main, it just leaked from everywhere. So I had gone out to the, to Pittsburgh cycle center and saw what they, they sold BSAs, they sold, uh, uh, Ducatis, they sold, um, not Triumphs, there was a separate Triumph shop. They they sold pretty much everything except Triumphs as far as British bikes go. And I would just go out there and hang around and look at the bikes and ask questions and ask more questions and ask more questions. And when I was uh, 15, I had a, a summer job at a, uh, at a car repair shop. And 
a, a friend of mine lived in the same town as me, and he had bought a single cylinder Ducati. It was called it was a, a super sport, and it, it's a 200 cc single cylinder, uh, really neat little bike. What was that? 1960? Is it 1960? Yeah, I, I traded in the, the Triumph. And he gave me, I think he gave me 200 bucks for it or something and absolutely trusted me to pay him off. Those were the days. (laughs) Those were the days. Yeah. Trusted me to pay it off. And I, I got it at the beginning of uh, my work, my summer work. I had June, July and August off. And I said, yeah, well, I'm making 30 bucks a week and I'll, I'll, you know, I'll pay you every week, which I did. And so now I had a brand new, brand new motorcycle, no driver's license, <laughs> still, <laughs> still. <laughs> and, and uh, I, I, I picked up a copy of uh, Motorcycle Weekly, the British magazine, mm-hmm. right? Actually, my, my uh, friend of a friend of the, the uh, older guy that was my sister's boyfriend had a, a copy of it. And I looked at it and I saw Right, Norton Manxes and and in the Isle of Man and the road racing going on over in in Europe and I I looked at it and I went, oh man, I got to do that. I just have to do that. I mean that was that was before I I got the Ducati, but now I had a motorcycle, a brand new motorcycle which I had to break in and right right I would come home every day after after work and take it for a ride. And back then, what they would do is they they put a little uh, sleeve inside the carburetor, so you could only open it about halfway for a break in. Oh, right. Yeah, and yet, it, so it it just uh, it didn't didn't run terribly well, but you you know you could ride. I could ride it. I could ride it on the road. And the next year, I started. I went down to uh, the friend who had had the original Ducati had started a little shop in North Carolina, which was a couple hundred miles from where I lived. And for, for the, uh, in between my 11th, uh, junior and senior year in high school, at the end of the school year, uh, the junior, my junior year, I went down and worked in the shop. And part of working in the shop was that we took my bike and we turned it into a race bike. So we had a, we had a road race bike. And your mom still doesn't know at this point? <laughs> she 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 knew that I was going to work in a motorcycle shop, and there was there was enough evidence around so that she she, she was pretty convinced. But but what she was convinced of was that I wasn't going to stop. <laughs> which was interest which was interesting because when I went to get a racing license, it had to be uh, sixteen to get a racing license, and I when I turned sixteen, I said. Uh, I need your signature on this because I'm not 18 or whatever you needed to be 18 or 21. I'm not sure what it was. One of the two. And, uh, I said, you know, um, I need your signature on this for, uh, for, for racing. And she just looked at me like I was some foreign <laughs> entity that it just sort of <laughs> flop, flopped into her, into her world. <laughs> but she said, but she signed it she and I got her and I got a racing license. What? So you got a racing license before you got your road license. I got a race. Yes, I did. Wow. That's right. But, but I had already 
I already know how to ride on the road, obviously, and I could yeah. drive cars cars on the road. That type of thing. That's I was I was good at it. My my dad uh, he had a little bit of an alcohol situation, <laughs> <laughs> so we we were the first long drive I took was we went down to where he was born on the farm in Kentucky, and on the way back uh, we had to drive north through uh, Cincinnati. We got on the other side of Cincinnati and he said, uh, I got to, I got to stop here and see a man about a horse. And that, that meant that he was going to go in and drink. Mm -hmm. So I, I sat in the car thinking about it. And when he came back out, I said, Hey, uh, why don't you just let me drive? But this is, this is when I was 10. (laughs) This was years before. Wow. I was 10 years old and I was just a little squirt at 10 years old. And it was, this was a, you know, a, a 47 Chevy four door three on the three on the column. Right. And I had driven and, uh, he said, yeah, okay, well, if we get stopped, just tell the cops that you're taking me to a hospital. <laughs> <laughs> that had to be quite the feat for you, though. I mean, we're talking, like, back in the day, we're talking, first of all, manual steering. The the clutch, you know, trying to reach the clutch from the seat and, and the, the stiffness of the clutch, all of that stuff. The, wor- the world would disappear. I had to go down so far to get the clutch in all the way and make the gear changes that I went down below the steering, the top of the steering wheel. And all I could see was a dashboard. <laughs> that is bizarre. But it's very clear you're trying to like right from that 10 year old thing, probably before you're trying to work your way in. I mean, you're sort of chomping at the bit when it comes oh, to, I, to vehicles or motorcycles. Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I could see that, you know, there was just an enormous amount of freedom and, and that, that image of the guy riding by on the motorcycle, it never left me. Yeah. Uh, that's incredible. Yeah. You, you actually, it'd be, it'd be neat to paint that, you know, to have that painted or drawn or something like that to sort of capture that image that you have, the, the, the one that really started everything for you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that would be fun. Yeah. Would... So you, you've got your, your racing license. What do you do yeah. with that? Well, uh, at that time, the, uh, the club that was operating on the East Coast was called the AAMRR, American Association of Motorcycle Road Racers. And there were a bunch of good guys running the club, right? There were some real enthusiastic guys. There was one guy, you know, gone to Europe racing and, and, uh, they, they, uh, they were having, uh, races at a little track called Vineland and it's in New Jersey. It's, uh, it's not there. It's close to New Jersey motorsports park. And I, I've gone, I've gone out to take a look at it and the, the track that was there, it's gone. Uh, it's just a bunch of trees now. Vineland still exists. It's it's a little town, but that was my first race, and uh, I did really well, actually. Oh, really? Well, I, I guess yeah. you had a fair bit of experience at that point of riding, anyway. I, yeah, I had been riding, and uh, there was a uh, there was a, a factory Ducati rider who was there, and I had a perfectly stock engine with, I don't remember what kind of tires on it. I think they were, uh, uh, what, what did we, what did we use that? It was something like an old K81 Dunlop. And my, my lap time was two seconds of his. And he was, you know, he was like a development rider for Ducati. Wow. And so I was impressed. I thought that was pretty good. 
And uh, so did the guy who ran the shop that I worked at in the summertime. And, uh, you know, we had already taken my bike and turned it into a race bike. And so there I was racing motorcycles. And on your first race, sort of getting a name for yourself. Uh, yeah, the first race went pretty interestingly. <laughs> it was a, it, we, we had taken the, uh, the Kickstarter off it. So you had to run and bump start the thing, which is, you know, how they, everybody started racing motorcycles back in the day. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, I, I, I didn't get it. I didn't get the thing running for the start. Right. And, but I finally got it running, but everybody had gone, they were, you know, a lap ahead of me or whatever it was. And that, that was my first race experience was, was, uh, not going off with the pack, mm. but still riding it. And, uh, you know, like, yeah, I could, I could ride a motorcycle and I have, I even have some pictures actually from, from that time. Oh, that would be neat to, to get a few of those to go in the show notes with this. So when you say bump start, are you doing it by yourself or do you have somebody there to help you? No, you had to bump start the bikes by yourself. Oh, everybody did. That was the way it was done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You had to put the thing in first gear, back it up until you felt the compression stroke, right? Pop, mm-hmm. pop, pop, back. And then and then pull the clutch in and when the flag dropped, you'd run and hop on the side of it. But I was nervous and uh, I, it didn't get it started the first time, which was really annoying. Yeah, but but- anyway. Anyhow, I did, I did get out there. I wasn't, I didn't finish anywhere particularly, probably, you know, I got by a couple of guys, but it was, everybody had already done half or three quarters of a lap by the time I got the thing running. Mm -hmm. Do you remember what you felt like when you got off the track that day? Uh, I, I was, uh, I was a little bit down about not getting the bike started on time and not going off with the pack. And I was, uh, I was, what I was doing was trying to refresh my, my memory of how I was riding around the track. And all I knew at that time was that you try to straighten the corners out. And that was, that was like some total of my knowledge on how you ride those things, how you, how you ride anything. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's what I did, but I was, I was very I was very thoughtful about, about the, about the ride after I came in and, uh, and, uh, I even have a, I even have a picture of that. It's interesting. I'm just sort of staring off into space, just trying to, trying to get some kind of perspective on what it was like to ride out on a track. I loved it. It was phenomenal because everybody's going the same direction and I'm, and I was racing, mm-hmm. <laughs> I was racing a motorcycle. Was it, was it better than the street at that point? Are you, are you thinking that, that riding on the track is better than the street or, do you, or did you want to do both? Oh, no, completely different than riding on the street. And, and that it's all I wanted to do was race. Mm. So did yeah. you ever get your, your, I mean, you must have since then, but I mean, in, in that time period, did you get your license for the street or did you not bother? Oh, no, I got a license for the street as soon as I was 16. Oh, I see. You sure. And did that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That was, that was a, a given when back, back in that time, right. 
probably probably still is, but it was, you know, as soon as you're 16, you get, you get a driver's license, you know? Well, it, uh, I don't know if that's the way nowadays. I'm surprised at how many young people that uh, I know that haven't got their license. Now it's a lot more complicated, of course, today than I mean, you've, you've got this multi-step process, depending on where you're, you are. But, um, it seems that a lot of them are not, not doing the thing that, that a lot of us did growing up where as soon as you're 16, I mean, like, it's like the day you turn, you want to go and do your written test, you know? Oh, but, absolutely. Yeah. I don't know if that's a thing anymore. I'm not sure if they're doing it, but, but anyway, uh, so you're, you're, so you've got your race license, you're, you're starting to race. Do you, do you just keep going and, and building at that point, getting better and, and, and doing more races? We, uh, we raced, uh, the Vineland track, uh, there, there weren't very many tracks around at the time, but by the time I turned 16 and, um, uh, I got, I, I got a friend to, uh, who had a car and we took the seats out of it and we put my Ducati in it and went up to New Hampshire for the Loudoun races, right? Which is, I think they're celebrating this year, like the the hundredth anniversary of the Loudon races. And at that time, the track was a a road that was in a park. It was a park road. And it was, uh, I don't think it was any more than about a mile and a quarter, maybe, maybe a mile and a half around the thing per lap. And the, the races up there every year, were really big. There lots and lots of spectators, lots and lots of guys on motorcycles, and then they the the track it, itself. Most everybody back then was also a dirt track racer. So the motorcycles were their dirt track bikes with a front brake on them, mm. and that's that's about all that was changed. They put a front brake on it. But you know, the, well, I'm watching these guys, and they're on their their Harleys and Indians and and that type of stuff, a few guys on, on British bikes. And they, you know, would come up to the last corner that, that came onto the front straightaway, which was a, almost a hairpin. And they would throw the thing sideways and, <laughs> and go through the corner. And I went, shit, I don't know how to do that. I'm just going to have to do the normal thing. Right. Like I had seen in, in all the, all the pictures and from the, from the British races. So, uh, you know, I, I didn't try to do the slide thing. I did do some dirt track racing, but but I I never never really got in into the 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 riding style of the late of the fifties and sixties. You when you, but when you see that, you don't think you're in over your head, maybe, and and think, no, I don't want to do this. Oh, I I was never over my head. <laughs> you're just gung ho. <laughs> I was yeah. There nothing nothing was was stop me right from just getting out there anytime I could with this, you know, I would, I had to take buses to get to the shop in North Carolina. Uh, it's, it's, I would, I would do anything. So the getting, actually getting to a race was, uh, to a real race because it was a pro race. That was, it was a huge deal for me. Mm. Getting your racing license had to be a big deal. I mean, that that had to be something that was kind of elitist. Uh, the race license for the pro races, uh, I think all you really had to do was have another racing license. They didn't they didn't really ask you any other questions. Mm. But I already had the club race license, the double A M double R race race license. So 
that was easy. You did have a time where you where you stopped racing. Uh, yeah, there was a time when I stopped racing. What was that all about? Uh, well, you got to understand it was the 60s. Take just a quick break. I have two things I want to tell you about, but stay with us. You will not want to miss the rest of this story. Hexinnovate.com are the makers of the Easy Can. The Easy Can is a CAN bus connection that allows you to add accessories to your motorcycle and use the existing controls on your bike to turn them on or off. If your motorcycle has a CAN bus system, like most modern motorcycles do, then the Easy Can is the answer for your accessories. It's going to save you a ton of wiring. It's safer. It's easier to operate. Saves you having dead batteries, and the manufacturers love it because you can't hurt your bike using it. It's a plug-and-play system available for Triumph, Husqvarna, Harley, Honda, KTM, BMW, and soon, if not already, for Ducati and Yamaha. Plug-and-play, the Easy Can is so good. Like I said, manufacturers love it. That's HexInnovate.com. Now, HexInnovate is also the inventors of the GS911. That's the diagnostic tool for BMW motorcycles that you can plug in and use to see the codes that only the dealer could read before. Now, instead of being stuck in the middle of nowhere, you can plug in your GS911 to your BMW motorcycle and see what the problem is and start diagnosing your own faults. That's huge for anyone who goes out of the way, whether you're on a long trip or just back in the woods. Hexinnovate.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Hexinnovate.com. The photos that I've been seeing from Overland Expo on Instagram, it's incredible. I'll tell you, this July, July 7 and 9 to be exact, July 7 to 9, is the PNW Overland Expo. This one is held at the Deschutes County Expo Center in Redmond, Oregon, a huge overlanding event that you do not want to miss. Over 300 exhibitors, over 175 specialized classes. They say get outfitted, get trained, get inspired, and I don't know how you could go there and not have those things happen to you. Overland Expo PNW this July. Now, oh, Friday evening, they've got a moto dinner. This is motorcycle stuff only here. Party and raffle hosted by Eva Rupert. They have a free moto intro experience as well. That's not necessarily on the Friday night. That's throughout for those who want to try riding. So if you've got somebody going with you that isn't a rider, this is their chance to actually try it out. Just test it out. They've got rally games for those with their own bikes. They've got ADV skills area where you can learn everything from roadside repairs to tire changing. The list goes on. Motorcycle demo days, all three days, where you get to ride brand new Urals, Triumphs, Yamaha, Royal Enfield. Roundtable discussions, demonstrations, thousands of like-minded overlanders. There's so much going on there. You've got to go. Weekend or day passes are available. Now, now look, you, you need to get your tickets online for this. you got to book in advance. So you go to their website, overlandexpo.com, click on the PNW link, and then get your ticket. There is a specific moto weekend pass with camping, overlandexpo.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, when you go there, tell them that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. If you're not riding on IMS products, foot pegs, then you're missing out. These are the real deal. Wider in a way that give you better control, yet designed properly, ergonomically, to maintain access to your brake and your shifter. 
Of course, there's a lot more that goes into the design of a great foot peg, but that's one of the things that makes IMS pegs great. But here's the most important thing, and you may not want to share this with your riding buddies, <laughs> because installing IMS pegs is going to make you look like you've become a better rider. <laughs> And, and really, honestly, in a way you have, because IMS designs their full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs to not only give you the added leverage in a balanced way, but they've designed them to grip your boots without tearing your soles apart. So you'll stand and shift your weight with confidence because you're standing on IMS products foot pegs. Cast certified stainless steel, warranted for life from a company that's been doing it since 1976, made in the USA. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. You've got to understand it was the 60s. <laughs> <clears throat> and right. uh, yeah, and I was going to art school, design school. And, uh, you know, I had to, you know, get into the 60s. So there were a lot of drugs around and I was enthusiastic. <laughs> that's, that, that's, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> so you enthusiastically embraced the, um, the sixties culture, the counterculture, I guess. Absolutely. And, and then that took you away from, I, I can understand why took you away from racing, probably a very good thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I did actually race uh, once while I was still taking drugs. And uh, it was interesting, for sure. The little track, little track in Ohio. And uh, it was, uh, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a sane moment, you, you wouldn't want to repeat it. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't the whole point of it, though, supposed to give you some sort of perspective that you wouldn't otherwise have? Uh, I definitely got a perspective I wouldn't otherwise have. <laughs> yeah, I don't mean just a different one. It's supposed to give you some sort of, I don't know, some sort of insight into, into your, I mean, that was the point with a lot of it, wasn't it? Especially the hallucinogenic drugs. It's supposed to give you some sort of insight that you wouldn't, uh, a, a positive insight, I guess, oh. that you wouldn't otherwise have. Yes, I... Uh investigated all the drugs. Thank you. Right. I, I thought you were going to tell me some story that, you know, you took drugs and it gave you some insight and that's what really made you the great racer afterwards. Is, <laughs> is, like, that's a great story. No, uh, it, it, it didn't. <laughs> the drug, the drug thing was the drug thing and the, and the racing was the racing, right? They're both highly addictive. Don't get me wrong. Yes. And expensive. Uh, yeah. Yeah. They get a lot right. in common, don't they? But you, you... Oh, I, I got very creative with the drugs. I, I, uh, I was, uh, I was a good design student and, uh, I just made my own prescriptions. I, I, I made them from scratch and I learned how to write prescriptions so I could get any, any drugs that, <laughs> that were sold. And I, and I did write them, R write them how? Well, it was all made up. I just would make stuff up and, 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 and then write them. I mean, taking blank paper with press type and, and make, and make, and make, make the prescriptions. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You really dive into stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way of putting it. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I was very good at it. I had prescriptions in almost every drugstore <clears throat> in Youngstown, Ohio, when I went there for, uh, uh, my mom wanted me to go to college. I didn't have any interest, but I did anyhow, because she's a real sweetheart. And, uh, so I, I, I did finally get arrested factually. Oh, because of that. Uh, yeah. Did yeah. That, that was part, that was part of it. That put an end to it. Nope. Oh, <laughs> no, I didn't, I didn't really get out of drugs until 1970. So, uh, and then I did, I was done with them mm-hmm. and, and, uh, it's been, I've been done with them ever since that. But, uh, and, and then I moved to, to California in 70 and that's when I went, Oh, okay. All right. This is, uh, this is the, the paradise for motorcycles, obviously mm-hmm. completely different than the East coast. You can ride 12 months of the year. So, you know, I had to get a motorcycle and, and then, you know, I started getting in communi- get good communication with some people, but some guys at shops and that type of thing. And, you know, finally I, I got a bike that I thought I could race and uh, bought it from a guy, set it up for racing. I'm a pretty fair mechanic, actually. And uh, I started doing some some club, local club racing here. And uh, AFM, American Federation of Motorcyclists, and there was another club called, it, uh, I can't remember what it's called, it, Double AM, Double, no, Double, Double A, Double R, something like that. It was Wes Cooley's dad who, who ran the ran the club, if you remember West Cooley. And, uh, so I started racing and, uh, uh, pretty much hadn't, hadn't stopped fiddling around with motorcycles since then. That was in 70 or 71. It was 71 when I got, got back out there and actually, uh, I, it wasn't that I raced an awful lot because I was doing it completely out of my, out of my own pocket mm-hmm. until I started getting some help, but that wasn't, until about 73 or 74 when I got some people who were enthusiastic about racing and they wanted to promote their company and that type of stuff. And, and um, uh, but my interest in it never, never dropped uh, even a fraction. So uh, my, my first pro race was at Laguna Seca in 76. Uh, no, that wasn't my first pro race. Actually, I, ra- I raced a borrowed TZ250 at Ontario, another track that's gone. Beautiful track, beautiful place here in Southern California. And there was uh, AMA Pro Racing there. I raced there. It was uh, it was back in the heyday of it, really, because I remember uh, I had no classification and I had I had a brand new pro racing license. And in that class, the small bike class. It was three waves of 30 riders on, on the Ontario track, which was, uh, it was, uh, 3.1 miles. So it was a big, big, long track, 21 corners, 3.2, 3.1 or 3.2 miles. And, uh, I got started doing that. And then that was, I think in 75. And then 76, I did the first superbike race when 76 was the first year of, of superbikes. And I wanted to, I wanted to do it. And I did it with the Kawasaki Z1. Wow. I, now, hang on, just before we jump into that, was there a time where you, you got into writing, you published some, some stories and stuff? Uh, <clears throat> no, not, not until 81. 
Well, I see. That's when you, that's that's when you wrote your first books, Twist of the Wrist. The first, the first, the Twist of the Wrist book was was uh, I started writing it in eighty one. I finished it in eighty two. I think I got published in eighty three. And uh, yeah, it was one of those things. Was I, I was uh, I was uh, in good communication with all the motorcycle guys and Mitch Bame at uh, Motorcyclist Magazine, and he called me up and asked ask me something and. I, I I knew those guys from uh, just going over and hanging out just to see, just to be in the in the in the fold, mm-hmm. so to speak. And uh, he called me up and and said, "So so what are you doing?" Uh, and I had already been racing. What what's happening? I said, um, and and I had been writing some stuff. And I I said, "Well, um, I'm writing a book." He went, "Oh, you are." All right. I had no idea I was writing a book prior to him asking me what I was doing. <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, oh, what's it called? And I went, uh, it's, uh, uh, I didn't have a name for the book. <laughs> I said, but, but, but I'd always, you know, been sort of interested in the, in the idea that, you know, it's just a twist of the wrist when, you, when you're riding a motorcycle. And I said, uh, a twist of the wrist, that's the name of the book. And he went, oh, great. Well, you know, when you finish it, let me, you know, give me a copy and I'll review it. And I went, yeah, sure. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> so you can see you know, some of my life was just sort of <laughs> pecking around to see what would happen and finding little avenues of approach to go racing, to stay in the racing community, to, you know, get to be a, a pro racer and, uh, and so on. And it was all sort of, you know, almost happenstance kind of things. And the only thing that was consistent was my drive to want to want to do it. And right. I think you know, life goes like that really. And for most people, anyhow, you just stay, stay with your image of what it is that you want to do. And you keep on pushing and pushing and pushing and, you know, don't pay any attention to the things that set you back. Yeah, you gotta keep your eyes wide open and spot. Be able to spot those opportunities when they present themselves. Otherwise, you you may not recognize it. Yeah, or create your own, which is you know how the superbike school started. But when I I quit racing at the end of '79, was uh, I was actually uh, how old was I? I was 34, right? And and no nobody, hardly anybody was racing at that age back then. Nowadays, you get guys up, you know, 40, 41, 42. But back then, people were, you know, got into racing when they were 17 or 18 and 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 were gone by the time they were 26, 27, 28, maybe 30 years old. Wow. And But I didn't want to leave the community because I really loved it. And I loved the people and, 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 and so on. So I thought, uh, you know, uh, I want to stay in this game. And... How am I going to do it? And I had started helping other riders. I was uh, on the board of directors of the AFM, the American Federation of Motorcyclists. And back then we had 900 members, 900 licenses. Hmm. It, it was the, the club was big. There was a southern chapter in uh, LA, and there was a northern chapter in, up in San Francisco. And uh, I, I did. I just didn't want to. Didn't want to. I, I wanted to help, and uh, so I started training riders and making doing the new rider school they didn't have much of a new rider school when i started with them you know there was no new rider school uh, 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 at all of any kind and just you bought a license and you showed up and you went and race raced 
right? And you figured, keep, keep on asking people, you know, where to go and what to do. And uh, so uh, that's the, kind of the short, the short history of the first to twist of the wrist. But uh, I was starting to get a little better at it because I had been working with other writers. And what happened was uh, I thought, well, I was doing okay in racing and, and uh, I was figuring some stuff out. So actually in later in 76, I started the Keith code writer improvement program and it was just me doing one-on-one with, uh, with writers. Most of them were club racers who wanted to make improvements, but, uh, I wrote, uh, I have about seven or eight pages of material that I wrote at the time. And, uh, I would check them out on, on the, on the written material. And then we'd go to, for, for a day and talk about writing and talk about lines and talk about, you know, just what, what is involved in, in writing, especially in racing. And is that a track? And then we would go to the track the next day. So it was kind of one day of, of theory and then one day of practical. And that was, that was the beginning of it. And then when I decided I didn't, didn't want to, uh, or wasn't going to race anymore at the end of 79. That's when I went, well, maybe I'll start a school. And uh, that was interesting because there weren't, weren't really, there was, there was nothing out there that, that had motorcycles and leathers and boots and gloves and, you know, all the, all the gear. But mm-hmm. I, I want, I wanted to have a, you know, a complete thing. I was just the way I, just the way I thought about it. So your book came after that. The first, book. yeah, that was, that was in 80. And my first book, the first twist through his book was 83. So when you're going to start the school, you're thinking maybe you'll start the school. What is it that you thought you knew at that point that maybe other people didn't know? Well, most of the, the data that I had figured out was on the, on the visual aspects of writing. And, um, a good a good deal of uh, several of the six or seven little bulletins that I had written were uh, different ways of looking at uh, at the visual skills that you need to ride, and I had you know just noticed that some places went a lot better, and some places I was a lot less nervous, and in some places I you know nobody could pass me, and that all lined up with how I was seeing what it was that I was doing. And it's still a huge part of the school. It's a whole level of, of, uh, of school. It's all level, about level two, but it was, uh, it was those visual visual skills that, that uh, I was able to impart. And I had great success with the, with the writers I was training. I mean, noticeable, serious, significant improvement in everybody I worked with. And that, which was kind of cool. I, mm-hmm. I still, I still have all the folders from, from everybody. It fills up one of my, you know, one of my drawers in my, my <laughs> that's pretty but, neat. Yeah. You mentioned visuals there. Talk about visuals. Picking up reference points, understanding them, no, no, knowing uh, what to do, what, how to sequence them, you know, just the definition of a reference point. Right. Is, and no one has had done that till that point. No, there was nothing. Wow. There was nothing, there was nothing in writing. And all there was, was, you know, good advice. Like, well, you don't know how fast you can go until you crash. <laughs> wow. That's interesting. So and do you think that like, if you were to start now today, 
would you be able to have the same success that you, that you've had? Uh, I thought I had the same success I had. Um, well, I don't know. It, it's an interesting question. And what has happened over the 43 years of the school is, is the evolution of what we teach, what we coach and how we do it. And, uh, there are, I have written 147 technical bulletins on how to coach, what to coach, what kinds of things to look for, what problems the writers have, how to fix them, and and how to do it the most effectively. And uh, I mean, we've had 196,000 students. Wow. <laughs> Holy! 196,000. How, how many of those do you teach? Uh, well, for, for, uh, I did 12,765, uh, briefings. Wow. Right. We do theory and then we have the, the practical side of it, right? We, mm-hmm. we have classroom, we, we lay out what it is, what we're working on, what the technical points are, what, what the, what the, what's good about it. What's bad about it? When you get it right, how does it work? When you get it wrong, what does it do? Uh, I mean, we have a, we have a uh, enormous amount of information just uh, that we impart to the students, and we try to, we keep it simple. We don't get into a lot of heavy physics and that type of stuff. A little bit, a little bit where it up it applies, but uh, the uh, the briefings are what gives the students uh, the specifics on what it is that our on track coaches want to see from them. And the on-track coaches are all grooved in and, and and understand what it is they're looking at. And we stay in good communication. So the on-track coach always knows what the student is is supposed to be working on at the time that he goes out and works with them on the track. So that's evolved enormously over the last 43 years. But it, all it really does is get better and better. And we have several hundred different specific drills that focus in on some aspect of throttle control, visual skills, passing, uh, body position changes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the, the, the categories that we, that we cover. And, uh, mm-hmm. it's, uh, the training of the coaches is, the, is, is our big deal. That's, that's, that's the main thing. That's the important part is that they actually know what they're looking for and then have a very specific idea on what to do to correct the, uh, the writers that are, under their care for the day. You know, with, with teaching, I often think of it as, is sort of like in, in two different realms. Like one would be the experience based or maybe a narrative teaching where the teacher teaches people from what they know, they, they go and do something and they're very good at it and they can teach people sort of up to that point. But then there's the, the more of, I guess you could call it, I don't know, conceptualizing uh, teaching or, or teaching from theory, teaching from theory would probably make more sense. And it's, and it sounds like that obviously that's, that's what you're doing. Like you can, you may not be riding at that high level, but you can teach riders to ride at, at a higher level than the teacher. Does that make sense? Oh, sure. Sure. Well, the technical points of riding are the technical points of riding that it's not like, uh, it, 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 it's not, it's not a, a fuzzy thing. It's their specific things, throttle control has its rules, you know, getting a line through a corner has its rules, understanding how to 
the simply, simply simple basics like understanding steering and how it works. Right? We have you know video. We have a rat, whole raft of specific drills on that. The visual skills. I think I have uh, thirty-nine drills, individual drills for visual different vis- parts of visual skills. And I don't have anything better to do. So I sit around and I write this stuff, you know, <laughs> and then, and then, and then we, uh, we distribute it to the coaches around the world at our various branches and here in the States, of course. And, uh, you know, we're just trying to flesh this thing out so that we don't have anybody that can show up that we don't understand what it is that we want to get from them. And you can always take a rider and, and get them to improve. Yeah, Uh, very rarely do we get somebody there who's just there on an ego trip. Here in the States, we have 2,800 students spots a year. 2,800 student spots at the 10, I think we could do 10 tracks right now. Nine or 11 or 10, something like that. And and, uh, rarely, very rarely do we get somebody who just... Who's not? Who wants to come out and show us what they know, or you know, rather than actually be there as a as a mm. student? But we uh, we have our ways <laughs> of cha- of changing their mind. <laughs> yeah, I should have I should have worded that question differently. That's what I meant for people who actually want to improve, because that is the key, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Who, who, yeah. Who comes to your school? Like, what are they looking for? Well, our I think our average age at the schools these days, uh, it has gone up, uh, as, as, as motorcycle sales, uh, yeah. as far as, as far as demographics go, it goes in age. I think our average age these days is around 55. Huh. Yeah. I bet you didn't expect that back in the eighties when you started. Yeah. Back in the eighties, when I started, our average age was more in, in the twenties, mm-hmm. 25 to 30 range more more in that range yes that's true but uh there are there's there's good reason for somebody who has a real job and a family etc to want to have fun but understand what they're doing and get better at it and they're willing to pay for it which is great because it's a commitment that they make on their own which is very nice and that's why we only get you know very 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 tiny you know one part, tiny part of 1% uh, of people who are, who are untrainable. But if they're untrainable, I give them their money back and send them home. <laughs> but that's very rare, you're saying? Very, very rare. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And now you have schools around the world you just mentioned. Yes, yeah. We train all the, all the coaches from here, right? They, although we have a chief riding coach in the UK branch and also the Australian branch. But they, they go out to, you know, quite a few different tracks with those schools. We go, go to China, Taiwan, the Philippines. Oh, wow. We've been to India, uh, New Zealand, Australia, of course. Uh, and uh, it, it's a long list. <laughs> the, the people that are coming out, what is their goal, like, for the most part? Is it to race or do people come out to try and improve their road riding skills? Most of them come out to improve their road riding skills. That's interesting. That, yeah, that, and that would be 90% or, or better. Just want to know how to do it. They want to have some of the, 
understand some of the technology. They want to be able to do it. They want to be as safe as possible. They want to be able to uh, challenge themselves and go fast when they want to go fast because everybody has a good time doing that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and the on-track coaching is, is it's, it's, it's the key to this because having somebody watch you, when I go and ride, I get myself a coach huh. when, when I'm at the school. I get a, I get one of the coaches say, who are you coaching? Do you have, do you have too many guys? If they have more than two guys, I go to somebody else and say, Hey, how about giving me some coaching? Right. Because I'm, <laughs> I always think about it like this. I'm just as delusional as the next guy. <laughs> <laughs> Overestimating your abilities. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. That, know, that's, a, that's apparently a human thing, you know? Well, I think it's a male thing, but uh, there's research on that. It says I'm that, sure. Yeah. I'm, yeah, well, it's a, it, I mean, motorcycle riding it, it is a very interesting multitasking activity. And, you know, we have our five senses, touch, taste, smell, vision, et cetera. But we, we use another 20 perceptions routinely to ride motorcycles. You know, I mean, when you turn, when you steer a motorcycle into a corner, what, what is the prediction level of the rider on where the bike is actually going to go? How many corrections do they make in their line? For example, mm-hmm. when you, when you're approaching a corner, you have a, you have a, some sense of how fast you want to get into it. So how do you set an entry speed target and how do you adjust the motorcycle to get to it? All right. I mean, that's two and there are, 18 more perceptions and they're separate perceptions. They're not, they're not sound, touch, taste, smell, but they, they rely on some of them, but it, it's, it's just, a, it's just another aspect of the, the writing that that's, that's so interesting. It's, it's and, calculating, right? I mean, you're using your brain to calculate. Yeah. I mean, just on watching a, a student in front of you at the school, just on corner entry, I have a list of, 31 things to look at. Hmm. We do, we do a simple steering drill, which is done at about 25 miles an hour. We just have the rider ride out and we get them, you know, two, three, 400 feet, whatever we got at the place where we are. And we have the rider weave the bike back and forth, but there are 25 corrections that have come up over the years and they're written down. The coaches are trained in them and they, they address them and get the rider sorted out on them. And some people have huge, 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 huge wins just on that 25 mile an hour, weave the bike back and forth uh, drill that we do. And we do that with everybody. What, what kind of things are you looking for? Looking for uh, shoulder position, head position, body position on the, on the bike, uh, whether they're pushing down on the bars, whether they're pushing for, straight forward on it, just getting, getting them, getting the, the, the basics of, of, how to cooperate with the motorcycle to get it to do where you want, what you want it to do, which is change. You can change speed and you can change direction. That's what you can do on a motorcycle. If you can't do anything else with it, that's what you can do. So that those are the things that we're, we're actually looking at, but yeah, the line prediction, uh, the sense of speed is a huge one because riders have difficulty getting into getting into corners at a speed that's just comfortable themselves. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you can go too fast. You can go too slow. You go too fast. You tend to run wide. Go too slow. Quite often, you have a tendency to get back in the gas too early, and then and then run wide because of it. And of course, we've identified the uh, 
all the all the specifics on crashes and why people crash and what the problems are and they have a lot to do with that that specific area and most often the crashes even even on electronically controlled bikes is adding lean angle and throttle at the same time because they start running wide in the corner and they want to adjust for it and they just the load on the tires is you, you can outsmart even the best electronics. <laughs> I, I want to ask you about cornering. What, what kind of riding do you do when you're, when you're on your time off? Do you, do you ride an adventure bike at all? No, I don't have one. But what, what do you have? What do you ride? Um, I have 31 BMW, 1000 double R's. <laughs> wow. You are single minded. in your approach. <laughs> I don't ride on the street very often. I don't have a street bike. Now I used to have a street bike and I used to ride in Los Angeles every single day. And I did for years actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I have no reason to, to want to ride around every once in a while. Somebody will say, Hey, you want to go up to the crest or something like that? I'll go, Oh yeah. Okay. Fine. And, you know, we get down and we, get a couple of bikes and go take a ride, but it's, it's rare. Right. Well, well, let me ask you about cornering as far as street cornering, but not with a, not with a race bike. Now there's kind of the way I understand it. There's, there's three ways that you can lean into this corner. You could either sitting on the bike, you can either push the handlebars down. And so you're sort of sitting up on the corner or you can match the lean angle of the motorcycle, or you can lean off, which is the way you're teaching everyone to, to ride on the track can you talk about the difference between those and, and maybe advantages and disadvantages of that? Oh, sure. Uh, the, the, the biggest single problem that we see is that riders want to maintain a, a level view of the horizon. And so they lean the bike over and they wind up being what we call crossed up on the bike because the bike's leaned over, let's say to the right, say 25 degrees, and their body is still straight up and down. Now, there, there are some mechanical disadvantages of that specifically because you're you're raising the center of gravity of the bike when you're sitting way up on top of it and pushing the bike down underneath you rather than being on the inside of it. And the per- whole purpose of hanging off is to get through the corner at the minimum amount of lean angle necessary for the speed that you're going. So hanging off the inside lowers the combined center of gravity of the bike and the rider and being crossed up on it, being on the top side of the, of the bike, raises the center of gravity. So for a given speed on a given arc through a given corner, you have to lean the bike over that much further in order to, to, uh, to maintain your line through the, through the turn. So there are great disadvantages in being crossed up on the bike. If you just sit in the middle of the seat and ride the motorcycle and you don't hang off and you don't cross up on the bike, you're fine. All right. You can, you can do plenty of riding and go good fun speeds and so on, as long as you're going with the bike. And there certainly are some head position and body position things that, that, uh, that attach to that, that we, we correct and fix, but the, the, that's the primary point on whether you're, crossed up or whether you're, you know, on, on the inside of the bike and even on the street, even if you're sitting in the middle of the seat, you can drop your, your torso weight to the inside of the bike and not use as much lean angle as you would if you just sat up on top of it. So, you know, we, we have some things that do definitely apply on the street where you don't have to, you know, 
look funny on the bike, hanging off the side of it with one butt cheek, half, you know, et cetera. I mean, some cops will just give you a ticket because you did that, whether you're going too fast or not. Yeah, yeah. and some people love to do it no matter the corner too. You you certainly see that. But so like technically speaking, so why does lowering the center of gravity reduce the lean angle required to go around a given corner? Well, it's just like uh, if you try to take something that's real tall around a corner, you have a lot of weight on the top of it, and it wants to wave around or or fall in. So lowering yourself on the bike or hanging off the inside of it, right, allows it doesn't add that ex, that uh, force that needs to be controlled. So the bike doesn't need to lean over as far because the the center it's like a low car compared to a tall car. If it, it, you know, that's if that's more more real to most people, yeah. A low car hugs the ground, corners nicely, you know, sticks to the ground very well. A tall, a tall car, you know, you're in it and you put it in the same corner as you did on the on your, you know, little sporty vehicle, and you feel a lot more, uh, a lot more pressure on the on the body. But my point is, though, what I'm trying to get at here is, is by sitting up, let's, let's say traction was an issue on a corner and you're, okay. and you're riding, you're on the street, Traction's, traction is an issue for whatever reason. Would you be better off to make that corner with your sitting position as vertical or would you be better off leaning on the inside? At the, so I'm looking at the two extremes. Absolutely on the inside because you, you, you conserve lean angle by lowering the the combined center of, of gravity, uh, or you can think about it as just mass uh, when you move it lower on the bike. So the hanging off technique or on the street, just getting your body itself from the hips over, just down on the inside will will conserve the, the lean angle so that you'll have the minimum amount of lean necessary to get through the corner. So that means the minimum amount of pressure on the tires, so if you have a slippery condition, you've you've done the best you possibly can to reduce it, the uh, the load for a given speed. So, is there any advantage of of being vertical, the rider being vertical when you're making a corner? Uh, well, that if he's vertical, then the bike is leaned over underneath him. Correct. Yeah. There is absolutely no advantage to that whatsoever. All that does is increase the amount of lean that you need for the speed and the arc of the turn. What about the the track racing? You know, the, where they're they're sliding sideways, and and I don't know the I don't I don't follow that kind of racing or anything. But where they they look more vertical when they're making the corner and they're sliding out. Completely different. How so? You know, you, you you don't want you don't want to have traction. You want the bike to be you want the bike to slide, and you put it over on the side of the tire because that's where they slide nicely. And and, uh, and you control it from the top of the bike. So it's the dirt riding and, and asphalt riding are completely different when it comes to that subject. Mm. So even though completely. they're making a corner and you can make the the comparisons there or the similarities there, it's really completely different. Completely, absolutely right. You 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 can lean the bike over further on the side, but here you are coming into a corner and you've got both wheels sliding. That's that's fine. But if you've got both both wheels sliding. On a road bike, you generally have yourself a bit of a problem. Right. right. <laughs> so now, so on the street, if you were quartering, so you're saying that, you, that your best bet is to lower your center of gravity. In other words, leaning to the inside would be the best. Does it make sense to do the same lean angle as the bike? So in other words, the rider sitting at the same angle as the bike? 
as long as he's not crossed up on it, he's not he's not creating more of a deficit, more of a problem. Hmm. As long as he's not crossed up, well, uh, sitting sitting up with the bike pushed underneath him. If he's just with the bike, that's that's neutral. If he can get his body slightly to the inside and a little bit down, then he's lowered the combined center of gravity, and he doesn't have to use as nearly as much lean angle. But you don't want to get you know your butt off the side every time you go around a corner when you're on the street. Mm-hmm. It's, so just just using the torso is is uh, is the best solution to that. But you can be s- sitting straight up in the seat, right, not hanging off one way or the other, not having having any butt cheek off off the uh, inside and just drop, drop your uh, torso mass in and that it helps. Yes. Mm. So anywhere, any way that we can lower the center of gravity on a corner, we is an advantage. So even slightly leaning forward would be lowering your center of gravity, putting your head over to the one side, like, like leaning towards your mirror, that would be lowering center. Would, would that all help in the corner? For yes. Forward and down, forward and down, forward and down. Yeah. That's uh, that's really interesting, and, and I imagine after what was it a hundred and how many how many students have you had one hundred ninety six thousand was that what you said one hundred ninety six thousand seven hundred forty five you got to be getting the hang of it by now. Well, we're starting to get good at this. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's an it's a, it's an interesting area for sure, and as I said a little bit before, when you look at the tasks that a motorcycle rider has, especially when they want to push themselves and have a little bit of fun because they're going faster, the amount of multitasking that you're doing, approaching a corner, putting the bike into the corner, predicting where the bike is going to go, getting back into the gas so that you stabilize the motorcycle and get the, get get it to cooperate with you and give you its very, very, very best, right, which can only be done with good throttle control. So good throttle control itself, right, we have 27 throttle control drills that 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 approach that but it's easy enough to understand that once you put the bike into the corner and you're online you want to get back to the gas at that point why do you want to get back to the gas well because it'll stabilize the bike on that line you get the weight off the nose you put the suspension in their sweet spot the front and rear both go into their sweet spot which is generally speaking in the middle of the stroke they're not terribly responsive when they're fully crushed and they're you know down, down, uh, fully compressed or fully extended. Mm-hmm. So forks just work better in their, in their mid stroke. So the amount of throttle control that you use on the bike is enough to get it into the mid stroke so that you have the maximum potential traction mm. for that, for that, for that corner, as well as stabilizing the line. So once, once the bike is, is handling whatever the, any, any surface variations and it's leaned over, right, to stabilize the line, you have to have good throttle control, not not too aggressive and not too lazy. Wow. After all this time and all these students, are you still learning? Absolutely. <laughs> wow, there's more to learn. I mean, th- that's incredible, isn't it? I mean, you think about that. All those hours, all those students, all the thought process put into teaching and, and understanding and, and learning better ways to teach, and there's still more to be done. I can assure you, nobody else in the world has 147 technical bulletins on riding motorcycles. <laughs> I'm sure. Wow, Keith, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. It was great to sit down and talk with you. 
Uh, that's really great. I have fun. Thanks. It's always nice to talk about the, the writing and just get a little bit of data out there, you know, and we covered a couple of things and the body position is, is good. All right. Uh, for, for the most part, just on that as a, as a subject for, for street riding, uh, sit, you know, sitting center center in the saddle is, is, is the most efficient really because, you know, hanging off a, it looks a little weird and mm-hmm. some, some people get rattled by it. And, but, but what you do with your, with your torso and try to get as, as low and forward uh, with your, just your torso without hanging off the side of the bike, uh, is, 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 is efficient, right? When you, when you have no traction problems and you're just cruising along, it doesn't make any difference. You just sit in the seat and be a passenger, be a good passenger. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when, once, once things start to heat up, when you, you know, get enthusiastic, <laughs> then, then it can make a huge difference. Well, Keith, thanks very much. It was, it was just great. Really. It was wonderful talking to you. Yeah, I had a great time. Thanks, Jim. I really do appreciate it. I was speaking with Keith Code, the founder of the California Superbike School. Their website is superbikeschool.com. Now, in the show notes for this episode, Keith sent us a couple of photos right from the wall of his house, his own personal memorabilia, so to speak, from him racing in the early days that we talked about earlier. As well, we've got some more contemporary ones of him. So drop by the website and see the show notes for this episode at adventureriderradio.com. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course, you. Thank you very much for being a part of this by listening. Now, the show is built on a model of advertising and listener support. This show is extremely popular. Both shows that we do, Adventure Rider Radio and Adventure Rider Radio Raw, which is a, a monthly show that we come out that we bring out each month on the 21st in Roundtable Talks. Both these shows are very popular, but only a very small percentage of the people that listen to it actually support the show. It would be really nice if you if you consider the show to be of some value to you to drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com, and click on support. Just have a look and then think about it. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Jim Martin, and I will talk to you next week. Wait, 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 wait. I almost forgot. We, we just put out an episode of Raw. I forgot to mention that because it was out the 21st, which is yesterday. So there's a fresh episode of Adventure Rider Radio Raw out there that people are enjoying already. We've already got a bunch of comments and, and emails back about it. So you can find it everywhere you find podcasts, but everything is available on our website. Just drop our website, adventureriderradio.com.
Hi, this is Charlie Borman, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. 